This week's episode of Trek Geeks is brought to you by Fansets, the place for amazing pin collectibles. You know, they have close to 200 officially licensed Star Trek pins to choose from, with new pins coming out every month. See all the pins and collectibles they have to offer at fansets.com, and stay tuned for this week's special Trek Geeks discount code. Fansets. We are Star Trek. This is Robert O'Reilly, Chancellor Garon, on Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. And you are listening to the biggest little podcast this side of the Alpha Quadrant. It's the Trek Geeks Podcast with Dan Davidson and Bill Smith. Glory to you and your house. From a cramped little Podfleet command office adjacent to Stage 9 with no air conditioning and blinking fluorescent lights and, well, it's a shoestring budget, I assure you. It's the biggest little show this side of the Alpha Quadrant and the flagship of the Trek Geeks Podcast Network. Greetings one and all and welcome to Trek Geeks. I'm your co-host, Bill Smith, and this is episode number 181. We are inching ever closer to 200, and man, what a privilege it is to, to talk to you all each and every week. Thank you so much for downloading, and thank you for listening. Uh, we are grateful every time you listen to our monotonous voices. And of course, by we, I do mean my co-host and I. He's the guy that, well, he makes Trek Geeks work, I have to say that. He's the lovely and talented Dan Davidson. And uh, Dan, unfortunately, we're going to cancel you after three seasons, buddy. Oh, ooh, wow. Well, I'm sure I'll have people writing into the network and the executive producer to, to, to bring me back. No, no. Don't shake your head. No. Are there trains next to Stage 9, too? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's great to be here, man. As always, thanks uh, for the great intro. It actually was a great intro for a change, so I really appreciate it. Um, it's good to be here. Episode 181. Wow. 19 away from the big two double O. That's pretty big. I, math is hard. Two double O? Two double O. Two double oh oh two hundred yeah um and episode one eighty one is a special one as as you uh, alluded to being canceled after three seasons I think there's a certain series that we all love that was canceled after three seasons but during those three seasons there are a lot of people behind the scenes that made the show actually work so what are we going to talk about today Bill we're going to talk about the people who made TOS work see what I did there I did that was amazing um. There are a lot of people that that took Gene Roddenberry's vision and translated it to something on screen, translated it to something that has spoken to all of us over the last 50 years. And, you know, like like any production, like any effort, it no one ever does it alone. And we want to talk about some of the people who helped make Star Trek a reality and helped create something that we all absolutely adore. And 
we figured that uh, the anniversary of Star Trek's cancellation was probably a good time to do that. Turnabout Intruder having aired 50 years ago last week. Wow. Yeah. You know, I've always loved Turnabout Intruder. A lot of people don't have a lot of love for it, but I always thought it was good because, you know, you know why I love it so much, Bill. Because it's very will take place. Actually, um, I do... <laughs> You have to say that they did not do it alone, and it's such a big topic to discuss that we're not going to do it alone either. Actually, uh, we are going to have a special guest to discuss those people who made TOS work, and I'm very excited about this. I see. I thought this is the part where you tell us about that special guest. I was going to. I was taking a little little dramatic pause. You're taking the duties away from the host, but that's okay. Go ahead. Exactly. Um, Well, somebody's got to do the job. Um, We are very excited. (laughs) Standard Orbit's own Ken Tripp is going to join us for this discussion on the people who made TOS work. Of course, uh, Standard Orbit deals specifically with TOS. He does a great job. They all do a great job over there at Trek FM. So why not share the love and bring one of the the super podcasters like Ken Tripp over here to Trek Geeks down to this low-level, you know, drama queen, low-end podcasting network and, and have a little fun. So here we are. Ken is clearly class on the join up this week. Um, it's always a joy to have Ken on, fellow New Englander, um, you know, fellow Star Trek fan, truly one of the the classiest people out there in Star Trek podcasting, and we love him to death. Also, a fine producer of this year' podcast, which you'll hear more about toward the end of the show. In the meantime, Dan, Dan, in the meantime, Dan, we want people to hear about how they can get in touch with us. Absolutely. It is very easy to get in touch with us. Just head right on over to trekgeeks.com slash contact. And there you will find a variety of ways to get in touch with either Bill or myself. You can leave us a voicemail. You can Skype chat us. You can fill out that contact form and type us out a personalized message. But why waste all that time? Just click on the big blue button on the right side of the website and leave us a message with your very own mellifluous voice using SpeakPipe. And hey, don't forget the place to be on Facebook these days is the official Trek Geeks Facebook group, Camp Kittimer. Bring your Trek talk, your Trek picks, and your Trek love over to the site and join over 1,400 other friends talking all things Trek. It is the place on social media where their Trek talk is positive and there's no bashing or gatekeeping allowed. Plus, if there are new announcements about the Trek Geeks podcast network, you're going to hear it first right there in Camp Kittimer before anyone else in the quadrant. To join the group, just head on over to fast head on over to facebook.com slash groups slash camp Kittimer and be ready to take part in a truly wonderful social experience. As always, we want to thank our wonderful admins, Haley, Jackie, and Dan, for the amazing job they do running the camp. And also want you all to remember that any comments or messages that you leave us in any of these places may be used in a future episode. Bill? You know, the amazing part is you read that copy every week. And um, one of these days you're going to get it right. I I am glad that you have faith in me because I sure don't. I have faith of the heart. Dan, in lieu of the new segment this week, we want to take a little time and uh, and reflect and remember someone whose amazing art was seen by millions of Star Trek fans all over the world for years. 
Yes, indeed, man. And I got to say, this one kind of hit me close to home. Um, as a fan of all those great novels back in the day, one of the things I enjoyed most was the wonderful book covers, many of which were drawn by the amazingly talented Keith Birdsong. Uh, every Star Trek fan uh, in in the world has seen his work in some form or fashion, whether it be on those book covers or pictures used um, by thousands of fans when they go to conventions to get autographs by all the stars of the various Star Trek shows. His work was beautiful and it was so realistic. And unfortunately, Mr. Birdsong passed away on June 4th after a lengthy illness. Um, He had suffered a massive stroke last year and was recovering, but unfortunately he had another one a week or so ago and uh, succumbed to that stroke. So we offer our condolences to uh, to Keith's friends, his family and his fans, but uh, take heart in knowing that his legacy will live on forever in the beautiful work that he did for so many years. You know, it, you you said it so so wonderfully. I mean, every novel I can think of at the time had a Keith Birdsong cover. And, I mean, you take a look at the novels of today. The, the artwork is impressive, certainly, but they're not drawn by hand yeah. and painted by hand the way that Keith Birdsong's art was. I mean... His art took a lot of time and it was, you look at the detail in some of these covers and and it's exacting. He was such a special talent and those books are, the covers themselves are classic, you know, uh, in addition to the novels themselves. Yeah. The one that always comes to to mind for me is there's a next generation um, picture that so many people use for autographs and it's the, it's the cast kind of kind of along in a circle at the outside of the picture with kind of like a galaxy starscape with the enterprise in the center. That's one of those ones that has always stood out to me. And I do want to give thanks to our good friend, Larry Nemechek. He had actually mentioned something on his Facebook page last week about Keith being ill, which I had not known about. And it was just ironic that it was the very next day that he passed away. So um, uh, again, uh, he will always have his works remembered forever because they're going to be around forever. It was brilliant, brilliant art. And uh, again, we offer our condolences to everyone, uh, friends, family, and fans. You know, self-taught, an amazing Mm -hmm. talent. Uh, Keith Birdsong will absolutely be missed. Dan, here we are again to talk about, well, one of our favorite topics in all of fandom, and that is the amazing folks at Fansets. You know, every week on our podcast, Trek Geeks, Discovering Trek, soon to be others, we take time to talk about them because they're a wonderful partner of ours, and they have one of the best products out there for Star Trek fans. They absolutely do. Their their product is second to none, might I say. Um, the pins are of the highest quality. They are solid. They're strong. They don't warp, no pun intended. They don't fade. They don't break apart. I actually ordered a bunch last week. And as you can see in your camera right now, Bill, I'm wearing Lieutenant Tom Paris today. You are. I've been wearing a pin every day for weeks and weeks. I just kind of rotate through them. I'm proud to wear them. The list of pins gets bigger and bigger all the time. Uh, And as we said before, they have almost 200 Star Trek pins alone. And you can also get great accessories like storage cases and acrylic stands and locking pin backs and all kinds of cool stuff over at fansets.com. Oh, it's my turn. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Plus, don't forget for the month of June, the two pin releases are going to be Jake Sisko 
and his and his bus clothes, <laughs> um, the ones made out of the upholstery from the bus seats, and of course Malcolm Reed from Star Trek Enterprise. Now Jake is already available for purchase. He's been out there for you know, a little over ten days now, and of course Lieutenant Reed is going to be available on June fifteenth, so in just a few days. And of course, as always, as a special bonus to Trek Geeks listeners. If you want to receive 15% off your entire order at fansets.com, simply enter the code word Jake at checkout. That's right. Throwing some love out there for the first pin of June. All caps, no spaces, J-A-K-E. And that code is going to get you 15% off. Now, Jake, as a code, is only going to be available until Tuesday, June 18th, 2019 at midnight Eastern Daylight Time. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make an, a, an executive decision right here on the Trek Geeks podcast, even though you're the executive producer, Bill. Well, I'm, um, clearly I'm outvoted, so okay. I'm going to push that code out for an additional week. That's what I'm going to do. June 25th. That's what I'm saying. Uh-huh. What? Jake. Are you kidding me? I'm not even kidding you. Yeah. Two straight weeks? Two with, weeks. Two with weeks Jake? Two weeks of Jake and maybe Sabrosa. Uh, or, 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 or Aquiel, uh, or or your favorite DS9 episode. I don't care. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. So yeah, use Jake on fansets.com until Tuesday, June 25th Ooh. at midnight Eastern Daylight Time. Absolutely. Fansets. We are Star Trek, and we thank our friends at Fansets for sponsoring this week's episode. <laughs> Well, Bill, here we are again to talk about another great topic here on uh, the Trek Geeks podcast. But what's more important is that we have a fantastic guest joining us here today to help us with this discussion on the people who made TOS work. So I'm going to take a moment here to welcome once 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 again. Has it been on here? Discovering Trek? I don't even remember which one he's been on. because it's, Once it's, again. Yeah, we did very, the crossover. Exactly. Mellifluous tones of Ken Tripp. One of the hosts of Standard Orbit over on Trek FN. Ken, welcome aboard, buddy. It's good to have you back. Hey, it's great to be back with you guys. Uh, When you say fantastic, remember, I'm a Bostonian too, so I know that's a backwards compliment and that somehow, some way you got forced into pulling me in, but thank you for having me. (laughs) Okay, so if you want a a New England compliment, welcome to the podcast, you big jerk. There we go. That's what I'm talking (laughs) about. That's when I start feeling the love around here. Hey. That that's exactly it. Uh, it. It's a joy to have you here, even if you were the only one who could make it. <laughs> I appreciate it, Bill, and up your nose. <laughs> oh wow, we're going st- straight up seventies here uh, with a rubber hose. I might add. Well, I could have gone the other way, but I think you have a rating on your podcast. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to keep the welcome back Cotter aspect. Thanks, Ken. <laughs> no, no, I get it. I do get it. Anyway, but again, thanks, thanks for having me aboard. It has been a while, and. Um, you know, I was talking to Dan a little while ago that uh, my, my ability to podcast the last six months has been a struggle, even on my own network. So it's been uh, it's been fun. Hopefully things are, are lightening up so we can get back into the back into this show flow and, and get back on the air more often. But this is a this is a, a great time to, to be with you guys. Honestly, thank you. Well, we're going to talk about a topic tonight that is, I know, near and dear to your heart. That's the original series. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it occurred to Dan and I not too long ago that there are a lot of people out there who understand the concept of Gene's vision, but may not necessarily understand what it took to bring it to fruition. You know, Gene Roddenberry created something very amazing, but he wasn't the only person 
that added to the tapestry of, of what is Star Trek, even during the original series. And many of the creations we've come to love just weren't genes. And we thought it was a, a good time to, to sort of checkpoint and, and take stock of some of these individuals and give them some of the credit they deserve here as we observe the, the 50th anniversary of the canceling of the original series just last week uh, when Turnabout Intruder aired its final episode. Uh, which is kind of amazing to think. Just three years ago, we were celebrating, you know, um, the 50th anniversary of Star Trek and woohoo. And and now we're kind of talking about 50 years since it was canceled and nobody ever thought there would be Star Trek again, which is pretty amazing. Those fools. <laughs> I'm glad you. I'm glad that we're talking about this, Bill, because as you said, everybody says Gene's vision, and and if it wasn't for Gene, and one of the things that I'm going to talk about when we get into the people is everybody says, for example, oh, if it wasn't for Gene Roddenberry, we'd never have cell phones the way that they look today, and that's not necessarily true. So I'm really glad that we're going to be talking about this and bringing up people behind the scenes that really made Star Trek work which is why we probably call this episode The People Who Made TOS Work. So I'm getting better at getting smart. I really am. It, well, it, it's kind of a moving target for you, but we understand, <laughs> Ken and I. Don't worry about it. The creativity uh, here is unbelievable. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, this is what happens when you're low-end podcasters. I mean... Uh, oh, don't be a drama queen. Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so... So, Ken, you know, as a Star Trek fan, you know, you like us, you grew up watching it pretty young. You know, when we, we knew about the myth and the mystique of Roddenberry, at what point in your fandom did you start to realize, hey, wait a second, Gene didn't do this alone? Because I think we've all sort of had this awakening at one point or another. I would say it had to be somewhere in the mid-80s, to be honest with you. The... Um the amount of biographies that started to come out, uh, more of the conversations around the making of the films. And when I started reading more about that, you started uh, reading more about the actor's relationship with Gene, and they would bring up other names in the series. You know, Leonard Nimoy would talk about Gene Kuhn a lot and things along those lines. And then as I just started to read more and more, you realized that it was a much larger collaborative effort than first believed. And, and not that I would think that Gene was Gene Roddenberry, who you know he's responsible for it all holistically because he started the ball rolling. I, uh, I it, that's when it really started to open my eyes to just how many people came up with these different concepts because I think like a lot of folks, I did believe that everything was attributed to Gene's creativity uh, and the people behind the scenes just weren't as well known and that that happens a lot. I mean, you look at any big venture and you know George Lucas is a great example and so forth. there are other people that contributed to that universe um but they don't necessarily get the um the recognition because everybody's focused on the one person who came up with the the holistic concept and so that that's very natural but i would say mid 80s to answer your question and you know and you bring up a bunch of great points there and and we should probably stipulate at this point that this is not to take anything away from Gene Roddenberry himself right 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 you know, uh, without Gene, there wouldn't be Star Trek. You know, without Gene, there wouldn't be this vision of a of a future where everybody got along and there was no wars and no famine and no sickness. And, you know, we were prepared as a, a species to venture off into the galaxy and, and meet the unknown. So, I mean, Gene absolutely gets his due. I mean, we're not trying to mm -hmm. take anything away, but this is sort of a you know, an elevation of that conversation. And in fact, no one can do it alone. And that includes Gene Roddenberry. Yeah, I Fair also, enough, Dan? 
I absolutely agree. It, it's funny when you when you ask that question to Ken. I thought about it myself, and and it's not kind of the same time frame for me, uh, Ken. When I started to appreciate the behind the scenes, and I think I attributed the first name that popped into my head was Harvey Bennett. Um, and I think that's when I really started to appreciate because we started seeing pictures of the behind the scenes of some of the makings of the movies like Star Trek three. Of course, he was an executive producer or producer. I'm not, I, I can't recall which one exactly. I think a producer. Um, we saw him in Star Trek five as a, a chief of staff. So he got to have a part in a movie, but those behind the scenes pictures with him is what really started it for me uh and now of course with um the internet and everything is is instantaneous we get to see a lot of those things on discovery and 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 things like that and i think it's something that i can appreciate even more having thought about what the people behind the scenes and tos had to go through back in the 60s as to what they're doing today so i'm really looking forward to this conversation guys to be honest with you i'm sorry ken i didn't mean to step on your thought just a second ago Oh, no, no. I just, I guess all I was going with is that uh, in a lot of cases, uh, when it when it does become a big collaborative effort, uh, the the person at the top always gets gets the um, gets the focus. But you have to give Gene a lot of credit for allowing people to come up with concepts and being accepting of those ideas, because a lot of folks can be very uh, myopic and just say we're doing it my way. And to give Roddenberry credit, you know, he allowed those influences to really flourish and actually encourage that. So he does deserve a lot of the credit. You know, that's very true. I mean, the guy in the center seat gets the credit or the blame in many cases, and, and Gene is no exception. Mm-hmm. So so why don't we dig in and talk about some of these individuals? Dan and I have, have prepared a, a short list of some of the ones we think are highlighted, and, and Ken, you're welcome to chime in at any time with your thoughts, or if you think of some that, that you want to include on the list, um, I think that that would be fantastic. I, um, I'll, I'll start if you want, Dan. Sure, that's fine, buddy. All right. I think that you know, when I think about Star Trek and I think about the 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 long-lasting timelessness of the original series, because it is timeless, I have to look at Jerry Finnerman. Um, he was Star Trek's legendary director of photography. His lighting defined the look of the series from the very start. I mean, it's the reason why it looked so good on color televisions, you know, in the 1960s as they were being sold. You know, it's many people may not realize this, but because of his work on Star Trek, he was the first director of photography to be inducted into the Producers Guild of America Hall of Fame. I mean, that's how legendary his work was in the industry just on Star Trek alone. You know, all of the the colors, all of the lighting, all the planet sets where you see the different colored skies, that was all Finnerman. And I just don't think he gets enough credit for establishing the look of Alien Worlds and our Starfleet vessels in Star Trek, you know, he's the guy was amazing. He he worked magic on a on a shoestring budget. That's one of the things I like most about Star Trek is when we visit those alien planets. I used to always, I remember as a kid, I'd be like, "What color is the sky gonna be?" Because it was always it was always different, or most of the time it was different, and it was kind of cool. Yeah, the lighting on the bridge, the lighting, you know, when uh, particular episodes when Kirk has a close up and there's that bar of light going just across his eyes mm. is always something that I really liked and appreciated. So that's a great pick, uh, Bill. I I really like that Finnerman. I like that name too, Finnerman. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Ken? <laughs> well, you know, Nicholas Meyer had a great quote in the commentary for Star Trek Two, where he says, "Art thrives on restraint." And Finnerman thrived in a, in a tight budget environment and came up with some very innovative ways 
uh, to to really um, be be ultimate ultimately creative. I, I thought the the backdrop lights, you know, they were all just white screens, and he yeah. used lighting. There was no painting. There was nothing. And you know, just putting a lens or a cover over a light changed the whole dynamic of where they were, the adventure, everything. And the color palette on the show obviously was extremely bright, and we all know why. I, I thought, you know, it, it was very creative. Now, I have to be honest, when, when I saw that list, this was somebody I actually had to look up and, uh, and, and do a little study on. I was like, oh, my goodness. And then when I saw how innovative he was, that's exactly what came to my mind was, was Meyer's quote. It's like, man, you know, people always, whether it's in business or art or whatever, uh, when you put restraints on them, that drives innovation. He was very innovative and got recognized for it. So it was nice to see. Well, you think of that very first episode that, that broadcast on NBC, The Man Trap, and we open up, you know, on the, on the salt creature planet, and you see that sky, and immediately you know that this isn't Earth. You mm-hmm. know that they're on some strange new world, to coin a phrase. I wonder where I've heard that before. Ah. And and that's all based on what Finner, Finnerman decided to do with the lighting. Now you balance that against, pardon the pun, balance of terror. Uh, and you know, there's the the very submarine like lighting. You know, you get the the dim lights, you get the catch light on the eyes, like Dan talked about. To, to draw in this tension and this, you know, this, this drama and the gravity of the situation. And it's the same guy doing, you know, all the work. And it just, it really creates a tone. It creates a feeling. And I, I just, I don't think he gets nearly enough credit. So, uh, Dan, uh, you probably have a list of your own there. Why don't you uh, tell us one of the people who you think made TOS work? Yeah, absolutely. And and I will say, and I think the same for you, Bill, this is not in any order. There's no, this person was better than anybody else. It's just a list that we put together. And, and the first one that I, that I have written down, I actually referenced about just a moment ago, you know, we, we see these futuristic devices in Star Trek. We see the communicator, we see the tricorder. And there was an artist and sculptor by the name of Wa Chang and everybody Wa Chang tonight. I gotta say, <laughs> there we go. He's pretty awesome. He actually was the designer and the creator of the communicator of the tricorder, just to name a couple of things. And it's his design that can be attributed to current day cell phones and things that have the technology that we get to appreciate today. Maybe even I, I didn't, I didn't verify this, but maybe even the pad that we see Kirk writing on from time to time um, during the original series, which turns into a regular pad, P A D D and T N G, and now it's our iPads these days. So these things can all be accredited to this man. He's also responsible for creating some really cool aliens that we have grown to love over the 50 plus years of Star Trek. The Gorn was his creation, and so was the Horda, which we just talked about recently when we did the Devil in the Dark episode. So a lot of credit to this guy. He was innovative back in the day, and uh, and uh, we can be uh, thankful to him for what we have today. Everybody watch Chang tonight. Did yeah, you really yeah. do that? I, I did, and I actually wrote it down on my show notes so everybody can <laughs> oh. look back and smile when they're on the Patreon page. Oh, that was brutal. But Sorry. but you know, you're you're exactly right. I mean, if you think about it, the elements that Watch Chang designed over 50 years ago are being modified and adapted to present Star Trek. Mm-hmm. I mean, think of the way that, you know, the phasers and communicators look in Star Trek Discovery. You know, they right. are based on those TOS designs and they are, you know, you can call them homages, you can call them variations if you want to, but, you know, you're right. It gave us the modern day cell phone. It gave us a great many things. And um, I, I know a lot of people don't know the name Wa Chang and I hope they, I hope that they become at least aware and, and seek out some of the information on their own. Um, Ken, what's your favorite Wa Chang creation? Tribbles. 
Yes. Nate Tribbles. <laughs> there you go. I mean, is, is there anything more iconic than that, especially when you go to a convention? They're everywhere. Funny how that works. But uh, you, know, you mentioned the Gorn. He had the Salt Vampire. Uh, he actually did the Bird of Prey Romulan ship, too. I mean, this nice. guy had a, uh, a wide range of talent, that's for sure. And I love the creative mind. I really do. I, I just admire people. I mean, think about it. A, a communicator, a phaser, all the way to a Salt Vampire. I mean, that's, yeah, <laughs> that, that's, and, that's amazing. And one I, of the, uh, go ahead, Dan. I was going to say, one of the things that I really can appreciate about what he did is as I'm working on my cosplay for Vegas and I'm trying to figure out what I need to do and what I have to use for pieces and the materials, you go back to the 1960s with what they were able to design with what they had back then is really incredible. I don't know if they had the type of, of materials that we have today for cosplayers, but they were using cardboard and plastic and stuff like that. And they made it look real and believable, which is another credit to what he was able to do with all of those things. Well, and in some of those cases, he made it from stuff lying around. Yeah. You know, uh, or, you know, just incidental items that nobody would have ever thought to use, like McCoy's medical scanner, you know, which was essentially a salt and pepper shaker. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, it's. I think it was about the creativity. It's about seeing the the potential of what an object can be, and I think that that was something that that people like Wa Chang and certainly Wa Chang himself bring to the table. I mean, th- these things now we look at them, and we go, oh yeah, that's McCoy's whatever. That's uh, that's that's you know Spock's phaser or tricorder. It's it, these are things that have become second nature to us, but they had to be created by somebody, and the designs are just amazing still. Yeah, so. yeah, and you think about every element of it having to be soldered or put together, and um, imagine what he would have done with three D printer technology. Oh my! Oh man, I can't even. You know, it. it you know, you figure it probably took them weeks to make some of these things, and probably you know the design process is what it is. They had to make it look good for television. You know, there had to be hero versions that could be filmed up close, and then probably you know background versions for the extras or the red shirts who get blowed up on a planet, but. Um, with a 3D printer, I mean, what took weeks before could take hours, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. So, well, you know what, Dan? That's a, I love that pick. I mean, that is a that is a name that Star Trek fans should know. And if they don't, like I said, I hope they they seek out more information. Thanks, buddy. Personally, I'm going to move on to uh, somebody who I think was really key in the initial development and launching of TOS, and he didn't remain on the series long, but I think his footprint could be felt long after, and that's John D. F. Black. He was an associate producer and executive story consultant on Star Trek. He only ever wrote one episode, and that was The Naked Time. But his thumbprint is over every single episode of Star Trek. And I say that because he was the guy who was largely responsible for writing the infamous Space, The Final Frontier opening speech. Hmm. It was Roddenberry's idea, and he and Justman sort of, you know, put their heads together on it, and he wrote the words down. And now it's something that every Star Trek fan can recite you know, from memory in an instant. Black had notorious feuds with Roddenberry, including one over the original envelope script for the Menagerie. However, you know, Roddenberry completely rewrote that script and he took sole on-screen credit for the two-parter. Black filed a Writers Guild grievance over the payment and the screen credit, but ultimately his claims were denied. And, you know, just there were tons of arguments and riffs like that. He may have left the series after Miri, but his contributions and his role in the original series are undeniable. Um, I, I just think he, he he was probably somebody that 
that we wished had been part of Trek for a lot longer, but the contributions he made while he was there are, are just are still long lasting today. That's very, <clears throat> excuse me. That's very interesting um, about those feuds. Uh, Ken, you actually mentioned at the beginning of the discussion that, you know, Gene receives a lot of credit and a lot of credit is due to him for what happened in Star Trek. But at the same time, we've heard about some of these, um, uh, headbuttings that took place with Roddenberry. He was very um, steadfast in his ideas and what he wanted, and and he did have a lot of um, uh, tension and and arguments with a lot of people. And this is a perfect example um, of one that actually ended up having someone leave the show as a result. But as you said, Bill, he he will always be associated with Star Trek, and like you said, space the, the final frontier speech is something that will always be forever linked to Star Trek. And there's no way that that could ever change that. I was not aware of this particular story that you told how he actually left over this and had a, a, a really big fallout with Roddenberry, but that's uh, not the first time we've heard something like that happen. Well, you know, and Gene was notorious for rewriting, even when he necessarily shouldn't have rewritten. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's been covered in some of the, uh, the, these are the voyages books by Mark Cushman. Um, it's, they're stories that have been known because black has told them himself. Yes. Um, but, but clearly a person of undeniable talent. And, you know, when you look at some of those early episodes of Star Trek, they are rock solid. I mean, season one of TOS, Ken, is probably one of the best seasons of Star Trek out there. It is. And, you know, I, I can't really think of another show that, that launched as successfully. And I'm saying across all, all, all genres, I, I, I just think that it was an incredible first run uh, in development and how fast the characters came together. And I think, like you said, John D.F. Black, he's, he's told a lot of these stories, and I believe he's written a book himself, uh, you know, that covers a lot of this. And uh, so I, I, I guess from my point of view, Dan, back to your thing about Roddenberry and the feuds. Now, there was no question by the time he was running Star Trek, the next generation, it, it, it was, it was just a very volatile, um, tough, tough time for him. But I think because we're so into Star Trek and we know everything that happened behind the scenes, things can potentially get magnified or maybe not, um, brought to the, to the level that, that we would understand. But, Look what's happened on Discovery the first few seasons, the amount of writers that have come and gone and all. I think this happens everywhere. And I, True. Think, I think that Hollywood is a little bit different. It's, it's, a, whole, um, it's a whole different world. Egos um, you know, are magnified you know, 10 times beyond, I think, a lot, of, a lot of other industries. And the amount of money that, gets, um, that, that people have the potential of earning when it comes to getting credits on different things are huge. And so I think those things can get very volatile because if, if somebody's claiming one thing and you see it all the time, but of course we're all so familiar with star Trek. We, you know, how many times did this guy hit the head during the time that they were writing? And we know everything. Yeah. You know, I, you know <laughs> I wonder how different it really is on other shows. And that's why I say, you know, I, I know Roddenberry had his failings. Um, I'm just saying that a lot of, you know, we get to Gene Kuhn and some others with the ideas that they came with or, uh, or to the designs that Wa Chang came up with. I'm just saying he he put him in. You know what I mean? He he was uh, he was. I'm I'm not a, a stodge defender of Roddenberry by any means. Like I said, we could do a whole episode on all the things he did wrong or his failings. Yeah. Um, and the only episode that could exceed it would be my own. So I really don't want to go there. But, <laughs> but I I do think that uh, you know it's it's fair. And and a lot of folks I think that um, 
that worked on these programs that see all the accolades go to one person, there's there's got to be some jealousy involved there, too. There has to be. I, I have to believe that, too. You know, it's like you said, you know, every series has, has to have some of these challenges. You know, we get a bunch of creative people in a room. There's going to be disagreements mm-hmm. with how the art should be created. I have to believe that. And like you said, with Discovery, obviously, there's been turnover in the writer's room. Obviously, there's been changes with producers and things like that. So I don't think any series is immune to it. Next Gen had its own problems. DS9 had turnover. Voyager had turnover. Um, but... It, when I consider the long-lasting legacy of John D.F. Black, who sadly we, we just lost within the last year, um, he it just it is to me it is immeasurable because he he created the words by which you know we all recite. That's right. Mm-hmm. So right, Dan, what do you got? Well, the next one is kind of uh, similar to what you just brought up with John D.F. Black, buddy, and that is that this person's contributions are seen. Uh, every single episode of Star Trek, especially the original series. And that's the one and only Matt Jeffries. Of course, the creator of the USS Enterprise. He was responsible for a whole bunch of visual things that we've always seen and appreciated over the years. Um, He actually created the Klingon logo, which I know, Bill, you just love everything Klingon. So that logo was his. (laughs) And the the D7 Battlecruiser was his design. And, And as I said, of course, the Starship Enterprise, the Jeffries tubes are named after him. Um, I think every Star Trek fan knows that well. Uh, he he had to come up with a design that was futuristic for the time and that was believable at the time. One of the things that I've always joked about with my brother is, is when that ship is traveling in space, it's, it's surprised that it's not somersaulting over itself because the the saucer section is so much larger and looks so much heavier than than the rest of the ship. But it really is something that has become uh, a legend and it's iconic. Um, some of the things that I love about Jeffries about his later years is is that he actually fell asleep when he was at the movie th- theater watching Star Trek, the motion picture, um, and he never actually watched any other incarnations of Star Trek after that, which I find very interesting because he's so connected to the show. And, and the other thing that I found out when I was doing some research about Matt Jeffries is why – the Starship Enterprise is NCC one seven zero one. I did not know the reason. Do you guys know why it's one seven zero one? I think I used to know, but I think I've long since forgotten. Okay, it's um actually according to Matt Jeffries, the Enterprise was Starfleet's seventeenth starship, and it was the first in the series of Constitution class. So one seven. 1701, which is kind of cool. I didn't know that. Um, But he's one that will always be tied to the success of Star Trek based on the starship itself. So I I picked Matt Jeffries for my second pick. Ken? Well, Matt Jeffries um, created my favorite character, which is the USS Enterprise, right? And I I do know that people go, what's wrong with you? uh, That's a Navy thing. But I... I, I, What is wrong with you? No, I I mean, not about this. (laughs) It's another podcast, guys. It can go into my flaws uh, one, too. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> it'd probably be a lot shorter show if we could just do what's right with me. The, um, <laughs> what, what, I, what I like about uh, Matt Jeffries, just first of all, he loves and he's you know, I think you have to even go back to understand what this guy went through. OK, he was uh, on B-17s, B-24s, B-25s in Europe during World War II. Wow. This is when they were doing strategic daylight bombing, right? The Brits, everybody said the, the, the American strategy is insane. The toll 
was horrific on those pilots, but they needed to do something, again, innovative to, to, to halt the advance of the, the Nazi regime. He was a flight engineer on those planes. I mean, the fact that he survived that, he beat the odds, that, which is incredible. And he has a huge, had a huge, huge love for aviation, which I think was really neat. When he designed the Enterprise itself, and you walk through what he did, and, and I've, I've read a lot of things uh, about how he came up with the concept or whatever. It, it, you know, it was futuristic for its time, but it, was, it set the stage for all science fiction going forward, right? right. He, he made a ship where everything could be fixed from the inside so people didn't have to go on the outside. The engines were designed because he felt that they were so powerful they needed to be detachable. And, mm-hmm. and, they, and all of these different elements, which, you know, 50, 52 years later or longer, you know, we're, we're still like, wow, that's a beautiful ship. And, and, and Discovery, I think, paid great homage to it. Um, I did read that same thing where he said he fell asleep in, in the motion picture. And uh, I would have had words with him if I had known. But, <laughs> but what I thought was interesting, he, you know, he, he watched, I guess, the, the next generation for a bit, saw, and he was the one who came up with that initial phrase that they've turned my bridge into the lobby of the Hilton. And, um, <laughs> and you know, that, that has since been iconic. I think a lot of people have used that line. Uh, but, you know, going beyond just the enterprise, the design of that bridge, um, it's just it, it, it has it has influenced the way the military has designed its own centers yeah. in thinking and in making things much more effective, smaller, easy to communicate. You know, it's almost like you can try with technology to make the bridge more sexy with all the all the graphics and stuff, but it's still Matt Jeffrey's bridge. And I, I still think um, that that design is so practical. And so realistic that, like I said, it's been designed right into the real world, just like so many other elements of Star Trek technology. Uh, th- th- it's a wonderful thing. Uh, he he has he has his name he has his thumb firmly printed on uh, all things Star Trek. Well, you know, one of Dan's and my previous employers. Exactly. <laughs> we um we worked in an operations center that was designed like the bridge of the Starship Enterprise, and yep. maybe not on purpose. But that's the way it kind of laid out because it made the most sense. Um, and I think that there are probably operation centers for for technology companies out there that are like that all over the world and still are to this day. You know, if you think about Matt Jeffries and his contributions, his arguably his greatest creation, the USS Enterprise, is in the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a fictional starship, you know, is on the floor among all of these historic craft, you know, and it's, when you look at it in those terms, his contribution to culture to is amazing, let alone to Star Trek. So Matt Jeffrey is a, a true genius, you know, somebody who designed amazingly beautiful things that hold up. And I got to tell you, the Enterprise, I've said it many times, my boyhood ship of dreams, that's because it was gorgeous and I loved it. So... Um, I, I can't agree more with everything that everybody said because Matt Jeffries was a true genius. You're gorgeous and I love you. Wow. Is it opposite day? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Dan, I'm going to bring up one. I think we both have on our short lists. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that is, uh, probably DC Fontana. Um, absolutely. When I think about some of Star Trek's most timeless stories, um, you know, cause she, she was obviously a legendary writer and story editor for the original series. Um, she wrote Charlie X. She wrote Tomorrow is Yesterday. She wrote This Side of Paradise. I mean, so many others, 
But her stories elevated Star Trek into legendary science fiction. Coupled with that, the fact that she was a woman on the writing staff in the 1960s television series, you know, uh, that wasn't something that was normal necessarily for that culture, for that period of time. So in many ways, Dorothy Fontana, absolutely a pioneer. In addition to creating some of Star Trek's greatest stories, she probably has some of Star Trek's greatest legacy as far as the production. You know, she would come back to serve on on the animated series and for a time on on uh, Next Generation. Also wrote a few scripts for DS9 under a pen name, I believe. But um, there is no shortchanging the importance of Dorothy Fontana in the production of Star Trek. And there's no shortchanging her work as as scripted television. Um, Ken, there's a long list of of Dorothy Fontana scripts, um, and I know that pretty much some or all of these are among your favorites. Oh, absolutely! And you know, it, to me, it's it's interesting to what you what you said. She was a writer on some shows previous to Star Trek, but kept getting jobs as a as a admin assistant or a secretary. And then would get on get on the show, offer some suggestions or pen a script, and this is one where I think Roddenberry gets a lot of credit. He saw what she could what she could do, and and pulled her in to the writing team and and gave her you know the credit that she she earned on that show. And I know they they fell out hard during the Next Generation, but it, you know you think about it, it, it Star Trek in many ways uh, ahead of its time in what they were actually. Um, the story that they were telling, but here's, here's, here's a woman in the, in the early 1960s, mid 1960s writing these scripts, you know, or rewriting them, you know, uh, she, I guess she did a lot of rework on the ultimate computer. um, And then um, she, she went on to, um, to be an independent writer and came back and wrote um, the enterprise incident. Uh, I, I won't talk about the way to Eden because nobody's perfect, but you know, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's hey, brother, <laughs> we reach, we, we, here we go. You know, but I mean, just, just, just a great story. And, and for anybody that have seen interviews with, with Doris, Dorothy, I've never met her. I've never seen her at any of the conventions I happen to be at. And I really wish I had, but all I heard from everybody and what I've seen is that she's just a, a person of, of great character and class. And, um, you know, her storytelling, I guess, illustrates that as well. It's, it's reflective upon the writer. And like I said, this is this is something that, uh, you know, it's a shame in a way, right, that she had to, it's, that she used DC Fontana versus Dorothy C. Fontana. And, and a lot of women did that. And it still kind of happened right up and through the 80s where, yeah. you know, in order, you know, I think of S.E. Hinton, you know, other things, you know, his first name that came. This, now, anytime I see initials, I, I figure it had to be a female writer if it was before, you know, 1985 or something. But um, oh, she she was an incredible contributor to Star Trek's success with the um, with the with the specific episodes that she touched. And probably in many ways, she touched the majority of them through the second season. I, uh, I I love this pick, Bill. As you said, we both actually had had written down DC Fontana in our list, and and as we celebrate the women of Star Trek this year, along with fan sets, this is this is like one of the top, if not the top, behind the scenes women who made Star Trek successful. I don't know if Star Trek would have been as successful as it has become without the contributions of DC Fontana. As a matter of fact, Leonard Nimoy actually credits her 
with expanding the Vulcan culture in the way that it that that we all know it. Um, starting with like you talked about the side of paradise and she, she changed the romantic lead in that story it was originally going to be Sulu and she changed it to Spock and that really worked. Uh, and she's, she's, she was fantastic. I can't, I can't wait to meet her someday. Um, cause I, I really think, uh, I will, I will work to make sure that happens somehow, but not only Star Trek, one of the things I love so much about DC Fontana, and you touched on this a little bit, she's responsible for a lot of the success of some of the other great sci-fi series that both you and I really love. Six Million Dollar Man, mm-hmm. Buck Rogers in the 25th Century. She worked on those. She worked on Logan's Run as well. All great sci-fi stuff. Her imagination and ability to come up with stories for futuristic TV shows was really something, especially back then when, as you talked about, Ken, it was so difficult to be successful as a woman and had to do stuff like hide their names in a way and stuff like that, which just, just is just pathetic. But that was the way it was back then. And she overcame it all and became a legend in the, in the, in the genre. She wrote one of my favorite Buck Rogers episodes of all time, which is Planet of the Amazon Women, which is a total Star Trek script. I mean, I could see this being a season four TOS episode. You just sub in Captain Kirk for Buck Rogers. It is, I mean, it's it, it's Buck Rogers, so it's cheesy. But if you look at the guts of the story, it is pure Star Trek, man. And it's it's probably my favorite just for that reason alone. Yeah, she she put out some great stuff, and and um, I I will I will say, and and this is just a just a very slight possibility. We're working on possibly trying to be able to speak to her for the podcast. Don't know if that's going to pan out, but I might as well throw that out there just to get people's appetites wet a little bit. We'll see what happens, but with this celebration of the women of Star Trek, it would be great to have her on the show. Yeah, that'd be a great get for you guys. So, uh, so Dan, that means you're up. Yes. Um, I'm actually going to go outside the box a little bit um, with this with this um, pick, I guess we could call it. Um, I'm going to go with a company by the name of Kaiser Broadcasting. Don't know if either of you guys are familiar with who that is or what contributions they had to making TOS work. But in my opinion, without Kaiser Broadcasting, Star Trek would never be as popular as it is. Because as we know, it was canceled after the third season. And if not for syndication, it would have never become the cult classic that it has become. And all of the spinoffs and all of the movies probably would not have happened. They took the Star Trek series and they put it in syndication uh, and they bought the rights for syndication for Star Trek, which was very, very different back in the day. Normally shows that did not last at least four seasons were never picked up and put into syndication. But they took the gamble on it, and we have all seen what happened. That's how I got involved in Star Trek was because of syndication. It was on WLVI, TV 56 in Boston when I was growing up, and that's when I watched it on, which Kaiser actually used to own. And as Bill and I were researching this, we finally figured out that WLVI, TV 56 in Boston, WLVI is the Roman numeral for 56. So that's why it was TV 56. So that's kind of cool. A little trivia there for you New Englanders. But uh, Kaiser Broadcasting is responsible, in my, in my opinion, for the success of Star Trek after it was canceled. You know, when you brought this up to me, I was like, what? And then I started reading about them. And you're right. I mean, without their decision to put Trek into you know syndication on their stations... It never gets, you know, a movie. It never gets subsequent spinoffs. There is no Star Trek The Next Generation, which means there is no DS9 or Voyager or Enterprise or Discovery or Picard or animated series. There's none of it. Yeah. Without, you know, with 
one executive or one board simple decision to say, all right, we'll take a flyer on Star Trek. None of this happens. And that's a pretty amazing development to think that one decision, you know, that went against the norm had such an impact on our culture and our fandom. It's it's pretty amazing. And think of the gamble that they took. Not only normally shows of four seasons or more would be purchased for syndication. They took a huge risk in one that only lasted three seasons and one that struggled in the ratings every single year. Yeah. It was never recognized as being a great show back then. They took the gamble and man, it, it, I don't know how it paid off for them monetarily, but it sure as hell paid off for us fans. And that's something I'll always be thankful for. Ken, we know you were watching on WLVI as well, most likely. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and you probably were, were were watching around the dinner time just like we were. Well, yeah, it, you know, this was interesting when when I when I saw this on the list and went back and saw that it was um, partially owned by the Boston Globe. So yeah. once again, Boston is the hub of the universe and say Star Trek. So there we go. Um, <laughs> love it. But I, I did not know about the WLVI trivia. That is awesome to learn. I know, that's, right? That's unbelievable, right? Because I, I remember WSPK, Channel 38, and WLVI yeah. 56, and, mm-hmm. and Creature Double Feature and all that. So, oh, yeah, I grew up with that stuff. And um, you know, now I'm all nostalgic in my head. But I had heard many times about how it was very strategic that Star Trek played between 5 and 6 p.m. And it played up against local news all across the country and was kicking its butt. And uh, I didn't realize it was just essentially one uh, broadcasting company that that bought it and and distributed it. And then others, when they saw the success it was having, uh, like in New York and even in some some other markets, decided to also then buy the show for their for their regions and broadcast it at the same time. And then here we are today, all because of that. Uh, I mean, it's a it's amazing story of of how people got hooked on it. So I had heard the time slots. I had heard, you know, that that it was beating folks in the race. I never heard that it was. Um, Kaiser Broadcasting that that bought it. I think they took the risk in the first or second se- season in purchasing it. By the way, too, so they they didn't know where this thing was going to go or if it was going to make it. Obviously, it didn't, but they stuck with it. And what an incredible story! Well, and think about the time slot they were putting this in. Like you said, Ken, they were doing it, you know, against the evening news in most markets. And at the time, the evening news was not the kind of thing that that people were really excited about because it was stories about you know, the fallout from Watergate or the fallout from Vietnam or the fallout from things that just really were, you know, deep black marks on on our country and our political system. So, you know, there was this escapism. There was something else that people could watch because there's only so much of that stuff that you can you can see on a daily basis and maintain your objectivity about the world. So there was Star Trek. You know, it was an oasis in this sea of of just horribleness. And I get why people started watching it because that's precisely why my parents started watching it at that hour. Now it makes a lot of sense. Now you look back at it, it it really does. And the timing I'm sure had a lot to do with it, but just a great story. (laughs) That was an out of the box pick. And that was, that was a brilliant one. Every now and then Dan Davidson brings something to Trek geeks and it's only taken 181 episodes, but here we are today, folks, write it down. And I got to tell you, those two contributions have been fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Now your wife had nothing to do with it, but you wouldn't give her credit anyway. So, right. Right. She is the smart one. That's, that's, That's for sure. 
So, um, so I'm going to move on to probably one of my my two, you know, big heavy hitter picks. Not that none of these are are, are slouches by any means, but uh, you know, when I think about the importance of Star Trek, and I think about you know the individuals who are responsible for its success. There's no way that Bob Justman's name isn't entered into the conversation. Uh, he started as an assistant director and as a producer. Some people say that Justman is almost as responsible for Star Trek as Roddenberry, given how much influence he had over the production. Justman was the guiding light, and it was his steady hand that kept Gene grounded in reality as sort of his his first officer, his second in command uh, in the production. You know, listing all of Bob Justman's accomplishments and contributions would really be its own podcast. I mean, standalone, multiple episodes. But the fact that Trek stayed on schedule mostly and on budget, kind of, was directly <laughs> related to Justman and his steady hand. Um, he was so important that that Gene brought him back for Next Gen because he needed that sort of of figure to to work against him and work opposite him. So, you know, when I think of some of the most important people who brought Star Trek to life, uh, I I have to go with Bob Justman right after Gene Roddenberry is sort of a 1A, Dan. Yeah, there's there's not much more that I can say that you already did, Bill, in regards to Bob Justman. You're absolutely right. He should be in the same sentence as Gene when it comes to Star Trek because of everything that, that he was able to bring to the show and he kept it going and he kept it on point. You need one of those people whenever you're doing any kind of show to stay on focus and to stay on point. And he did, he did a really good job of doing that based on all the different types of things that were coming at him from other directions, one of which being Roddenberry himself. Um, so yeah, I, He's one of, you know, you get to these people, you know, nobody could have played Odo other than Renee, or nobody could have been Spock in the original series better than 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 Leonard. Nobody could have been the number one, so to speak, to Gene Roddenberry other than Bob Justman. Absolutely critical, critical person in the success of the original series. Ken, um, Bob Justman is legendary, almost as legendary as you are. Almost. Um, almost. Um, but... Uh, there's no denying what he brought to the production. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm very humbled, and uh, he's nowhere close, so stop. Um, <laughs> you, you know, you, you do need, in, in any organization, you need that top lieutenant, and you, you need that that person uh, to, to be the driver in all things. And we all have, you know, when we talk about being successful, and it doesn't matter in what industry, you need to have the right team, and you need to have the right counterbalances to what, what may not be your strength. And so when you talk about the creativity in Hollywood uh, and these these minds and these egos going at it left, right and, and sideways, you need that person who's 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 focused on the execution of the project, of getting things going. And to think about it, you know, he took on the first pilot and I thought, you know, it, it was a brilliant show. It, it didn't work, but it was it was enough where somehow, some way in a, in a TV world where even today you don't get a second shot or it's pretty rare, they got a second shot. And I think a lot of it is due to, to Bob Justman. I mean, putting it, putting it all together, um, making sure that, that both of these major pilots and, you know, he chose to put where no man has gone before. Uh, and, and it, although it didn't broadcast first, you could see why that, that really is the second pilot for all intents and purposes. A brilliant job, but he was, you know, he, he was that executive officer, whatever you want to call it, that um, people didn't want to mess with. And I also think, you know, and just and just reading a lot of his writings, um, 
it is interesting to see how the show acted more from a business practical than it did from the creative uh, in in many right. ways because those two worlds have to come together and it's so unlike big business right where where I run operations for a big company and we have to make sure we're doing everything to support the commercial organization. We don't clash too much only when we don't make what we're supposed to make or deliver what we're supposed to deliver. So there is this synergy um, in the in the Hollywood world. It's like the clash of two cultures. You've got people that are creative. They're not thinking about budget. They could care less. They, you know, they 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 want to live in, almost in in a surreal world where there's there's no constraints. And then a guy like Justman comes in and puts in those constraints gets these people to work together and then executes flawlessly on what has to be, you know, I still can't think of another show. And I know there's bias here. Uh, and I'm not talking about just Star Trek where the first season of any show comes together with as many difficult technical setups, um, a unique and unbelievably different um, f- uh, plot. And, and just, you know, so, so uh, I guess at its time, so revolutionary and and was so effective. And again, all these people came together to make it work, but it was Justman who made it execute. And I think that says a lot for him. Anybody who could rein in the the grandiose vision of Gene Roddenberry and that mm-hmm. writing staff mm-hmm. and make it actually producible for television it, it, within a budget deserves all of the credit in the world. Some of the Bob Justman memos are legendary. And if folks haven't read them, I mean, you can find them on the internet. You can find mm-hmm. some of the uh, the next-gen-based ones and some of the other TOS ones over at uh, at uh, Larry Nemechek's Trek Files. Um, you know, just he wrote memos that, that, that were just beautiful prose, but also very realistic. I, I can think of no other staunch defender of the gate than Bob Justman. And um, it, I'm... I think we should all be glad that he was there because we needed him on that wall, Dan. Well, you've got him on that wall. We need him on that wall. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. 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 It, we've all, we've, we just spent what, 10 minutes talking about Bob Justman and the importance that he had. So absolutely agree. Um, I'm going to throw a curveball at you guys for my second to last pick. It's not in my list, oh, okay. but I wanted to, to surprise you with this one because it's something buddy, that you probably wouldn't, think of someone who made TOS work because it was a very small contribution in terms of the overall picture of Star Trek, but it was one of the biggest contributions. And that's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Wow. If it, yeah. if it was not for him, Nichelle Nichols would not have remained on Star Trek as Lieutenant Uhura. Um, it, it is well known this, this story that she was going to, um, no longer be on the show because she wanted to pursue a career on Broadway. And it was at a fundraiser at an NAACP event where she met Dr. King. He walked across the floor, shook her hand and said that I am your greatest fan and had a discussion. She's told him that uh, she was planning on leaving and he talked her out of it. He actually told her that it was the only show that he and his wife Coretta would allow their three children to stay up and watch because they loved it that much. They saw the importance of having a black woman on the bridge of the enterprise. It was revolutionary at the time and he allowed her to stay. If she didn't stay, I totally believe that they would have filled that role with nothing that would have ever been talked about. It may have been a woman, but it would not have been a black woman. I guarantee you that would not have happened if she had left. And if not for, for that discussion that he had with her, the show would not have been as revolutionary as it was with the 
everyone is equal thing that we've come to cherish so much with IDIC. So I threw Dr. King in here for this uh, for this discussion, guys. You know, I think that's a fantastic curveball, Dan, and and certainly not one that most people would bring to mind. I love uh, I love this selection because I mean I can think of no greater beacon of hope or positivity in the modern day world at the time than Dr. King. And I mean, the story is one that we've heard for, for many years. It's one that, you know, has become legendary itself, but it doesn't make it any less important. And I think you're hundred percent right. Um, without Nichelle on Star Trek, I think it's a different thing. You know, I, I don't, uh, I think maybe it, it changes the makeup. I think maybe it changes our perspectives, but I think we needed that then. And we sure as hell need it now. So I am I'm grateful for his words to Nichelle back in the day, and and Ken I think it, it's pretty evident that um, it, it changed or it kept the landscape of Star Trek as it was because the change might have been uh, really radically different. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's funny when I was younger, and you, you get competitive with the things you like and you love, and as being an avid Star Trek fan in an era where you know you you were a nerd, you were a geek, you were all these different things for loving it. I remember that there was a, a huge uh, point of pride for me that Star Trek was the first show to have an African-American woman in a prominent position, first interracial kiss. It was like these Star Trek first type things. But one of the things that was missing from that equation was just the understanding uh, holistically of what that meant. So it was bigger than just being the first. And when you hear actresses like Whoopi Goldberg and others saying when they were a kid, this was the only um, character on TV that they could relate with, relate right. to. And that it was such, you know, in all honesty, it was, it was a very minor role, but it was, like you said, Dan, it was it was huge. Um, uh, it, I think that this, when you say, you, you know, you're, you're going to throw a ringer in there, that that it's incredible. And, and it's very humbling uh, as, as the years went on and you hear actress after actress talk about how big a deal it was that Nichelle Nichols was on that bridge, what, what she represented, what that represented for the future and the opportunities, you know, especially uh, for a lot of people that, that lived in a world of, you know, uh, inequality and despair, uh, just, just an amazing, amazing call out that as time went on, uh, I really began to appreciate more and more what that meant uh, much more than just a quote unquote Star Trek first. So, so great call out. Thanks, man. Well, you know, Dan, it's it's hard to follow that up, but I'm going to follow it up with my my last selection. And keep in mind, this is by no means a, a finite list. I mean, there are you know an array of people who helped make Star Trek work, and we're not saying that this is the definitive list by any means. These are just the first people who came to mind. But any listing of individuals would be incomplete without the contributions of Gene Kuhn. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. you know, our, our friend Carlos Miranda wrote a fantastic piece on treknews.net back in 2017 about Gene Kuhn, and it was so spot on. It's called, literally, Gene L. Kuhn, The Man Who Made Star Trek Worth Saving, and that truly is exactly what he did. You know, you think about it, Roddenberry created the framework, Justman provided the leadership, and Star Trek's other Gene, Gene Kuhn, filled in the details and the brushstrokes. I mean, so much of what we know in Star Trek, we can thank Gene Kuhn for. Klingons. I mean, Klingons. Mm -hmm. Something we still see today. The Prime Directive, the terms Starfleet Command and United Federation of Planets, and, and so much more. You figure he wrote, polished, 
or contributed to the the scripts for many of TOS's most iconic episodes, including Arena, Space Seed, Devil in the Dark, Sitting on the Edge of Forever, Mirror, Mirror, Trouble with Tribbles. His contributions can't be understated. Um, It may be Roddenberry's vision, but it absolutely is Gene Kuhn's universe. Um, Without him, there is no Star Trek that we know today. And when people talk about Gene, I am usually the guy who goes, oh, you mean Gene Kuhn, right? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. I'll tell you what, his contributions, guys, snowball over the years when you think about it. I'm I'm going to reflect on on ones that you brought up, Bill. Of course, Klingons. They didn't even know what Klingons were going to look like until the day they filmed that first episode um, with with John Kalkos. I mean, it's just amazing to think that he invented them, but – the people he had the vision in his head, but the people who were putting that makeup on really had no idea what they were going to do. And look what they did. And it became so successful and evolved over the years. Arena, I think um, the Gorn is one of the most recognized aliens in Star Trek. Space Seed brought Khan and Star Trek II later on down the road. Devil in the Dark is probably the most Star Trek episode of the original series. City on the Edge of Forever, The Greatest Love Story. Mirror, Mirror, The Universe, My Favorite Area. Trouble with Tribbles and Deep Space Nine's anniversary celebration of that. There are so many things that Gene contributed to Star Trek that go through the entire last 53 years. And I think that shows what a credit he was to the uh, to the series ken you know a huge a huge loss he, he died at 49 years old in the, in the early 70s and i think that um for me the first time i heard him mentioned was uh, by leonard nimoy at a convention where he was talking about you know essentially what you guys were saying what we were talking about earlier He's like, yeah, Gene Roddenberry did a lot, but Gene Kuhn did more to define Star Trek. And I remember, you know, raising the Spock eyebrow myself and going, huh? <laughs> well, what did he do? And then when you when you look back, and first of all, if you, if you go back a little bit further, you know, he, he served uh, in World War II, he, uh, although he didn't go overseas, but in, he, was, he was reactivated in the Marine Corps Reserves for uh, Korea as a reporter. And there was such an impact that the the war had on him that, you know, he he became, quote unquote, anti-war, which I hope everybody is to a degree. Uh, But it's it's just one of those things where, okay, I I understand how that means in definition. And then you look at how Star Trek was written, what it was all about, uh, optimistic future, negotiating your ways out of things. Um, not killing the the villain, you know, or seeking to mm-hmm. understand more mm-hmm. about them. All those aspects of what he went through became personified in Star Trek. And so you had Roddenberry who had this picture of, you know, all of Earth coming together and working as, as a group. But then you have a guy like Gene Kuhn comes along and says, yeah, and this is how they're going to solve the problems. This is how they're going to get themselves yep. through these adventures in such a unique and and wonderful way that has created all of our fandoms, right? This is what, what drew us to Star Trek in the first place. It was Gene L. Kuhn. So like Leonard Nimoy, he, he said it all in that, in that convention. Like I said, opened my eyes and then started reading more about what he contributed. And you're right. He, it, was, it, it was the two genes um, that put the two elements of Star Trek together. That, that made it work holistically. So yeah, you, you can't underscore his contributions. Just absolutely huge. I think of Roddenberry, Justman, and Kuhn as the other big three of Star Trek. You know, there's Kirk, Spock, McCoy, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the series doesn't work without them. And then there's the other big three behind the scenes, 
which is the two genes and Bob, and the series doesn't work without them. They each played a very specific role, a very integral role to the production, and without any of them, we don't have the Star Trek we know today. That's how pivotal the role that Gene Kuhn played. So um, uh, that, that's what I got, Dan. I mean, you're going to be hard pressed to uh, follow that up, but I'm pretty sure your next pick is pretty awesome. I'm going to I'm going to do my best. And uh, yeah, <laughs> another, you know, we talked about Kaiser Broadcasting a little while ago being so integral in, in the success of the show after the fact. But we all know that Star Trek struggled. Right from the get-go, it was not rated well. The reviews were bad. There was always the shadow of cancellation over its head. And if not for Bijo and John Trimble, mm. who knows what would have happened? They uh, Their tireless work as fans kept it going. You know, I talked about those rumors about cancellations. They started in 67. I mean, <laughs> the show is only a year old. Yeah. And cancellation is already a possibility. So Roddenberry actually secretly began to fund an effort by the Trimbles to persuade tens of thousands of viewers to write letters to support the show to save it. Um, So what they did was they took a mailing list from a sci-fi convention of 4,000 names, and they asked those fans to write to NBC and ask 10 of their friends to do the same thing. So kind of like that shampoo commercial. They tell two friends and so on and so on <laughs> and so on. And, and it worked. NBC, NBC says that they received almost 116,000 letters for the show between December 1967 and March 1968. That's a pretty respectable number. But according to one NBC executive whose name was not given – the network actually received more than a million pieces of mail, and they only disclosed that 116,000 came in. The Trimble saved Star Trek from cancellation. So they are the, the people that we as fans should look to to thank. And when we see them at conventions, because they still go to conventions, we met them at STLV a couple of years ago, especially Bijou. She should be the ground floor concrete level of the women of star trek celebration this year because if it wasn't for their efforts back then when the show was struggling it would have never gotten along to possibly even season two and we wouldn't be where we are today so that's my final pick and i just i just cannot thank them enough i can think of two or i can't think of two more humble people in the Mm -hmm. scope of their role and what they played in star trek and in star trek fandom than than the trimbles um, they are such delightfully wonderful people. Um, it, it was both an honor and a pleasure just to to get to meet them briefly at STLV a few years ago. I was glad that they got brought out for the 50th anniversary convention mm-hmm. because without them, there never would have been one, Ken. No, no, there, there wouldn't have been. And I think you, you said it perfectly. Very, very humble, wonderful people. Everything I've read and seen them on, they just you, you just smile, right? I mean, these, these are just just an incredible couple who had such an indelible stamp on ensuring that Star Trek lived on. Uh, and you know, where would it have gone if we didn't get those those other two? <laughs> it's just it would have yeah. just folded away. Uh, yeah. You know, and and in the it's funny how as time went on, you know, they they were kind of accredited with you know, running that whole campaign or whatever. I had no idea of Gene's involvement in it to many years later. And it's like, it's just brilliant marketing um, and people that, that, that jump on a cause that they believe in. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's so sweet that they're, they're held in such high regard today and are still welcomed. I mean, they, they are just um, the, the nicest, sweetest people on the planet. So, so good on them. 
two two quick things about the Trimbles that I, I'm just so thankful for. I actually have a bumper sticker that was from the 60s that says save star trek and i was able to send it to them to have them autograph it and i have it as part of my collection just wonderful and they are so involved and love their involvement of star trek even to this day bill remember the hollywood uh, premiere of of discovery the, when we met them there to oh wait a minute you weren't there but i did meet them at <laughs> <laughs> at uh, they were at the premiere of discovery that's how their involvement is they are still recognized by the people behind star trek and cbs of how important their role is in the history of the show. And I think it's great that they're involved in all of these things uh, and they should be involved because they're responsible for its success. um, Like so many of the other people that we talked about here today. And I love giving you crap about that, Bill. I really am sorry that you weren't there because I would have loved to have you there, but yeah, no, you're not. No, you're not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So Dan attends the star Trek discovery premiere bills at home going, I wish I could be at the star Trek discovery (laughs) premiere. And that's how that story goes. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's amazing that that this list of people um, is only one that we could add on to in the right. future. There are truly so many people who put their time and their effort and their creative ability into creating, you know, what we kind of take for granted as fans. You know, we have new Star Trek and we've had new Star Trek, luckily, for a good number of years throughout the last half century. And it's all because of the efforts of these and other individuals who tried to make this little network sci-fi show work. And I, I am I feel forever indebted to many of them because without them, there wouldn't be a Trek Geeks. There wouldn't be a, a standard orbit. There wouldn't be, you know, this this great extension of our Star Trek fandom. And dare I say my Star Trek family would be a whole lot smaller. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm grateful to them for all of their contributions, even Dan. <laughs> <laughs> and Ken, are there any other people that you want to highlight or any other aspects that that, that you think are, are just as, as critical? You know, it's it's hard to reach to the criticality of, of the people that you just listed. I mean, Herb Solo was a pretty big name. I, oh, yes. I think Leonard Nimoy, even back in the um, in the production of the show, he was he was very um, vocal about how he thought the character should evolve and uh, certain lines that didn't work. I, I didn't hear as much of that from the other characters. You know, I, you heard mm-hmm. a lot of comments about having the right amount of lines and all. I get that, but I think that that development, and then you know later on that same. Um, focus that Leonard Nimoy had really, you know, brought it together for three, four, and six and in both directing and writing and putting the stories together there. So, you know, but again, um, for the list that you had, it doesn't compare to the contributions as much as, uh, as, you know, as they did. So I, I think that uh, you, you captured a great list here and showed that there was and truly a huge team involved in making this show successful. It's never just one person. You know, that's really a great point, and, and that's kind of how the conversation comes full circle. We all love what Gene Roddenberry created. We all, you know, have an admiration for his his foresight, for his creativity, but it's like we said earlier, he couldn't have done it alone, and just like we couldn't have done this alone today, Ken, we are so grateful to you for uh, for coming in, bat and clean up for us, and, uh, <laughs> and it's always a joy to have you on Trek Geeks. You who are a fine producer of this show... And we are also grateful for that support as well. Ken, where can people find you, stalk you, listen to you? Because you're in a in a couple of different places, and we want to be sure that we touch them all. Well, thank you so much. The, the only places uh, you can really hear me on a regular basis is on Standard Orbit. 
uh, on the Trek FM network. I also do another podcast called General Quarters, which is a, a focus on veterans and veteran stories uh, that I'm working on. You can find me on Facebook. I'm in Camp Kittimer. And uh, I also am on Twitter, uh, Twitter, excuse me, I tweet out as, as at Boston SCPO. We'll see you in just over seven weeks at STLV. And what oh, a yeah. grand reunion it will be, my friend. Yes, it will. It will. Looking forward to that. Guys. Can be tripping. <laughs> well, he was tripping. Um, and we thank him so much for having been on the podcast this week. What a great discussion. Um, so many great people and uh, really not enough time to talk about all of them. We could have gone on for hours and hours about some of the contributions of some of those folks, Dan. Absolutely. I got to say, man, you had some great choices um, and 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 it really made me think about some of the things I hadn't thought about before. So it, when, when we first talked about this discussion, I'm like, oh, how are we going to pull an hour out of this? But we could go on for hours and hours uh, after the discussion we had today. It was really great. So kudos to you for thinking of it. It's in these moments after 181 episodes, you should just trust the executive producer. I'm just saying, although I got to give you credit for Kaiser broadcasting. That really was an inspired pick Uh, and spot on. Thanks man. No, like I said, if it wasn't for Kaiser, I, I really don't think we'd be here right now on this podcast. Well, Dan, if it wasn't for our friends in the band Five Year Mission, none of this would sound nearly as good as it does. Um, They are so creative and so amazing. They are writing one song for each episode of the original Star Trek. And like we've told you so many times, these these are not parody songs. Mm -mm. These are original compositions based on the episodes. And they make you think of these shows that we've watched time and again for decades in a different way, which is really the beauty of their music. So we want everyone to head out to fiveyearmission.net. Please buy some CDs, show the band some love, because we guarantee you, you are going to become a huge fan of Five Year Mission. I love Five Year Mission. I love all the guys in Five Year Mission. I love Star Trek episodes, Bill. And you know, one of the episodes I've always enjoyed so much, even after events of the past few years, is Whom Gods Destroy. It's a great episode, isn't it? When you think about it, it's, it was interesting to see how people with mental illness were portrayed back in the sixties. And it's just, it's laughable of how, how some of these scenes played out, but, uh, none of the people portrayed in that episode, whom gods destroy had bigger issues than the villain in the story. You know, he was required reading for all new musicians throughout the galaxy. His actions at the concert of Axanar are things of legend, my friend. Queen to Queen's level three be damned because he is Lord Fark, master of the universe. Lord Fark. Mm. I mean, isn't that his title anyway? I could kill you with my bare hands. (laughs) (laughs) And I might add that that concert on Axanar is the only thing that Axanar related that's ever going to (laughs) happen. That's fiveyearmission.net. Please. Please support the band. Go get some of their music. We guarantee you'll love it. Plus, don't forget, you can support the Trek Geeks Network of Podcasts by subscribing to bonus content via Patreon. Get access to exclusive content not available anywhere else. See the first of our annual supporters pins from our friends at Fansets and even get raw, unedited audio of all our podcasts, along with a whole bunch of other great perks, Dan. 
Lots of great perks. Uh, we also would like to take a moment to thank our associate producers for Trek Geeks. We are very grateful for their support, and they include Adam Sanders, Brandon Everidge, Heather Sohn, John Krikorian, Rick Tatro, Trey Womack, Shane Murray, Sean Lynn, Tim Robertson, Tim Serdar, Vikram Bhatt, Greg Rozier, and the wonderful and gracious Andy Fark. We also want to thank our Trek Geeks producers for their support. They are some dude named Ken Tripp. Never heard of that guy. Casey Shafsky, Charlie Mulvey, Chris Trebuzio, Craig Ewing, Eric Extreme, Jackie and Chris Hackney, Leonel Marchand, Matt McGonigal, Mike Bovia, Harry Michelson, Patrick Escudero, Sean O'Halloran, Peter Craig, and the lovely and talented Scott Vashon, who just celebrated birthday number 50. Oh, congratulations, Scott. If you'd like to become a producer on the network or even get access to the raw audio for Trek Geeks episodes, head on over to patreon.com slash today, where subscription levels start as low as 100 cents a month. <laughs> wow. Mm. That is the, the stone cold price of a dollar. That's fantastic how that wind, likes, winds up like that. Uh, Dan, next week, uh, because you're leaving us high and dry, we're actually going to be off. You're going to be on a road trip. Um, but the week after... We're going to continue our look at the women of Star Trek, started by our friends at Fansets, with a special in-depth look at one of the most influential women of Trek, as well as one of the newest. Yes, uh, I apologize for having to leave you uh, in the dust. Um, uh, my youngest has finished college, so Sue and I are driving to Orlando to pick her and her stuff up and then coming right back home. So it's a quick turnaround of 2,800 miles. Um, got somebody to watch the house, somebody to watch the pups, so we're gone. So, Sorry. Buddy. Uh, but anyway, next week, uh, she is the star of the latest Star Trek series, Discovery, or two weeks from now, I should say. Uh, and she was ex- and is exquisitely brought to life by the wonderful Sonequa Martin Green. Simply put, uh, in a couple weeks, we're going to deep dive into the amazing character of Michael Burnham as we have seen her through the first two seasons of Star Trek Discovery. That's in two weeks on Trek Geeks, the flagship podcast of the Trek Geeks Podcast Network and the podcast for your Star Trek fandom. Well, I'm looking forward to that discussion in two weeks. We're going to have a great time. One of the newest Star Trek characters, but certainly one uh, equally as important when we talk about the, uh, the influential women of Star Trek, both on screen and behind the scenes. So that's uh, two weeks on Trek Geeks. Uh, Dan, of course, for all the news on all the Star Trek show, we want everyone to check on uh, check on over, head on over to treknews.net. And uh, for more great Star Trek discussion, please check out our other podcast, Discovering Trek, available at discoveringtrek.com. For now, this has been episode number 181 of the Trek Geeks podcast. We do hope you all live long and prosper. As you so lovingly reminded me earlier this evening, just a little flashback. Coconut. <laughs> I love coconut. Coffee. Four Everybody years. say huh. four years ago, and here we are still doing it in episode 181. Wow, uh, yeah. And anyone who wants to hear the original, it's the uh, outtake for episode 15. So, uh, see you in two weeks. You got it. Music for Trek Geeks is provided by Five Year Mission. They're writing one song for each episode of the original series. Download their music at fiveyearmission.net. Trek Geeks, a Star Trek podcast is a production of Coconut Media Works, executive producer Bill Smith.
for even more Star Trek discussion, check out Discovering Trek, a Star Trek Discovery Companion, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and DiscoveringTrek.com. Bing bong! Hi. I feel things. Oh my god! Whoa! Hey! Whoa! <laughs> no, I went to the okay? gym. I went to the gym. Oh yes, I did not go to the gym, and I'm sorry. Uh, no, you're not. I am. I am no, sorry because you'd feel like me. As long as I don't look like you, I really don't care. Well, that would be a step up, or or, or at least <laughs> two or three for you. <laughs> I mean, so how was it tonight? It was rough, man. Yeah. I tell you what. Um, what? Yeah, my typical rule is start on the turf. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, because the harder things seem to be on the turf. Yeah, that was absolutely the case tonight. Oh, bully. Okay. And I started there. Mm-hmm. And it was an add around. So, oh, those are uh, not fun. Oh, yeah. And let me sure. guess. If you do the whole round, which nobody ever does, you got to like go backwards. That That's exactly it. There you well, go. Well, somebody like my wife might be able to do the whole round. Oh, but So here was the add around. Uh, 10 kettlebell high pull swings. Okay. 15 med, med ball slams. Yeah. Uh, five push-ups with a slider reach on each side. That's horrible. So you just do a push-up and you, you get your one of your hands yep. on, a, on a slide board. <clears throat> and when you are in the down position, as you're going down, you're pushing your arm out on the that's, slider. That's torturous. Oh, my God. Uh, kettlebell goblet walking lunges. I'm not uh, good with lunges. Split stance row with kettlebell. That's okay. Uh, gator crawl. Hate them. Oh, and uh, 20 band curls. So those were the seven things. And, you know, you, you'd add around each time. So first you do number one, and then you do one and two, and then one and two and three. And it's just, it was, there's no stopping. It was 20 minutes. Sometimes I get tired when I'm done number one and number two. So I can't imagine keeping going with three what or five. What is wrong? No, I mean, the, those ones that you were talking about, those are tough ones. Well, medicine ball slams aren't really that bad. So uh, I like, they are, actually I, like those. That they are after you do uh, ten high pull swings. You know what's you know what's funny. Let me tell you a funny story about medicine ball slams, which is kind of weird, but I don't know why. Whenever I do medicine ball slams, I almost always lose my wedding ring off my hand. I don't, I don't do anything yeah. else, but I that it always slides around, and I don't know why. I don't wear my wedding band to the gym mm-hmm. uh, because it's titanium. Yeah, and as soon as I start losing weight, it just flies right off. So I wear yeah. a silicone ring. Yep. Um, that I got it was cheap. It was on Amazon. And it just it stays on. That's what I wear in Vegas too, because my my fingers swell. Right. This is fascinating listening. And, and this is this is this is the outtake of all outtakes. I'm ready to fall asleep myself. Actually, I'm sorry. Did you say something? Yeah, exactly. Um, so um, I want to see Godzilla. Willingly? Yes, I really do. I've always been a Godzilla fan. I I cannot stand the Matthew Broderick Godzilla that came out. I don't know when. It's just horrible. It doesn't look like Godzilla at all. It's stupid. The eggs in the in Madison Square Garden. I just don't like that one. I loved the one that just came out a few years ago. I really thought it was great. I liked uh, uh, Brian Cranston's uh, small part that he had, I, and I loved the special effects in it. So I'm really looking forward to seeing the new Godzilla. I. Uh, uh... I'm really kind of fascinated by this whole thing, how they just sort of keep retelling Godzilla. Uh-huh. Um, but I see for me, and this is just me, it has to have the Japanese overdub. You know, it's it's gotta it's gotta have, you know, the the mouth not matching what's yeah. being said. Yeah. Or else to me it just doesn't seem like a Godzilla movie, you know? <laughs> That's funny. I just I think with today's technology, I always love to see how special effects evolve. 
And movies like this, like the other night, we just watched um, Kong Skull Island at the very end was on, and we watched that. And it's just, I love movies that have have um, advanced special effects the way they have, and Godzilla is definitely looking like that's going to be one of them. King of the monsters. You're the king of the monsters. You are a monster. Thank you. Thank you. I don't mean that in a good way. Why no, are you I'm going to take it as a good way, though, and I appreciate it. And you're a hell of a nice person for the thing, so... I've been. We've been watching a series on Netflix called Slasher. Oh, you were telling me about this. And it, I think it's produced in Canada, uh, largely Canadian actors. Season one is a little more um, uh, mind um, bleepery. Ah. Seasons two and three are all about the shock and gore. We watched season three uh, next because Netflix screwed up in the way it presented it to us. So we started season two. Oh. And uh, we stopped. Because I think uh, it didn't really settle well with my wife. Because oh. the first guy who got killed in season two opened a door and then had a chainsaw stabbed through him. Nice. And then it motioned all the way up his body. It was great special effects, I will say that. But. See, right now I'm looking at you as you're in the camera and I'm just imagining. And, and you can just see my smile getting wider and wider. That actually happened uh, in a similar movie, um, uh, Hatchet which took place down on the bayou. And the guy who played Jason in the Friday the 13th movies played this, this deformed killer down there. And at one point, the guy, he was, um, uh, he's been in Star Trek, I believe. He was also in The Fugitive. He was the cop who said that he saved everybody on the bus when it crashed, but he really didn't. He was, he was like cut from, from shoulder all the way down to the groin with a knife in one scene, and it was pretty brutal. So, yeah, yummy. So I'm going to have to check out this show. i get some ideas. <laughs> I, I hate you. Well, I, I have another story about similar to that, which is sad but funny at the same time. Oh, great! Wait, we're going to tell sad stories on the well, outtake now? Well, yeah, we have to because it all goes together. Because you'll be happy because it has to do with me dying. So that would be nice. Um, oh, so it's a celebratory story. Exactly. Sue would always tease me when we were when we were joking around. So she goes, "You know, I'm going to just drive you up to the, you know, the." the boonies in Maine and just string you up on some tree really up high and just leave you there. And I'm like, wow, that's, I love you. So the other night we're watching Northwoods law, which is a reality show about the fish and game um, officers in New Hampshire and Maine and stuff like that. And they have different stories. And there was just one story about a teenager who had gone missing for four days and there was a big search for him and, and and they had a whole bunch of people out in the woods looking for him. And the father was there, and they found him. And he was strung up in a tree, and he had unfortunately committed suicide. And it's not something that you normally would expect to see, but, but here's my point. And it was very sad. I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe that this is one of those stories where they actually – something bad happened because normally it always feels good. But she looked at me and went, I will never say that to you again about jokingly. To Why are we telling the story on the outtake? Because it, just, it popped into my head. We were talking about different ways, chainsaws through the chest and, and hatchets down the shoulder and, and, and you wanting me to be strung up in a tree. And so it, it just popped in my head. So anyway. Here's why I'll never do anything to you. Do you want to know why? Why? Because with my luck, you'd turn into an arch supervillain and be my nemesis. You mean I'd be a crappy movie? <laughs> No, I mean like you'd be the Joker to my Batman. I, I understand. Thank you. I was trying to make a joke. Yeah, you made a crappy joke. At well, that. it's a crappy movie. Shut up. <laughs> I mean, that, 
that's that's why I'll never do anything because with my luck, yeah. I, it won't get rid of you. I will come back. Yeah. Yeah, we took a dark turn this week. It was. Do you realize it was about four years ago this time that you first did the coconut song? Wow. I like coconut coffee. I remember it very well. <laughs> Everybody say, huh? <laughs> wow. You know, Swamp Thing got canceled already? What do you mean? <laughs> there was a, a, a Netflix series. There was? Swamp Thing. And, and this the, might and, explain why it was canceled. Exactly. And the actual the trailer for it, it looked kind of creepy and, and intense. And somebody on Twitter actually wrote they were doing an official reviews for it, but they had to, like, they couldn't do the review because they were jumping out of their skin every 10 seconds. It aired one episode this past week and it has already been canceled. They're going to show the rest of the season and then it's done. They already canceled it after one episode. <laughs> I didn't even know it, it, it happened. So it doesn't I mean, have Adrian Barbeau. It's not worth it. Well, Hey, she's in deep space nine. So I understand that. Thank you. Really? I didn't know that bill. What? Of course you didn't. Cause you're an idiot. Idiot. Hey, we said idiot almost at the same time. <laughs> you really got to watch more of The Office for Dwight Schrute. I do. I've been using a lot more uh, Office um, um, gifts gifts on Twitter lately because they've been needed. Maybe you should take a gift of this. Wow, people! I'm just so glad that you don't have to see his his um, hatred and vitriol. I have no idea what you're talking about. Of course not. <laughs> yeah, I like your chair though. <laughs> no, I have a Star like Trek chair. Random, random things just come at me. I have a Star Trek chair. You do. I, I have a chair. You ready to do this, jerk? <laughs> yes, I am. Whew. 